Welcome to Easter term. The sun is coming out, lockdown is easing, and that means season seven of Switchboard is here. I'm Izzy, and I'll be your host this term, joined by a new guest host each week as I keep you in the loop, bringing you Cambridge news and voices wherever you are. This term, at the start of each episode, we're bringing you three headlines we think you should know about. In response to the government's Monday evening announcement, Vice Chancellor Stephen Toop has written confirming that some in-person teaching will resume, and that he's looking forward to welcoming more students back to Cambridge, as lockdown restrictions continue to ease looking towards June 21st. Today, The Guardian reports that, quote, of the 100 cities worldwide most vulnerable to environmental hazards, all but one are in Asia. Increasing populations and climate change are working in tandem to amplify the dangers of environmental problems and severe pollution. Air pollution in particular continues to pose a significant threat, having caused over 7 million premature deaths worldwide yearly. In other environmental news, a recent study has confirmed that the stratosphere, the atmospheric layer directly above that in which we live, is shrinking as a result of the climate crisis. Professor Paul Williams notes that this study finds the first observational evidence of stratosphere contraction and shows that the cause is in fact our greenhouse gas emissions, rather than ozone. And now, on to the episode. Welcome to episode two of Switchboard. This week, in honor of Mental Health Awareness Week, we're talking mental health and Cambridge. We're going to hear from students and individuals who provide mental health support to discuss why mental health awareness is so important and also what still needs to be done. According to mentalhealth.org.uk, Mental Health Awareness Week is an annual event where there's an opportunity for the whole of the UK to focus on achieving good mental health. The week is an opportunity for people to talk about all aspects of mental health. And the theme of nature was chosen for this year because being in nature is known to be an effective way of tackling mental health problems and protecting our well-being. So that's what the Mental Health Foundation has said about this week. And now I'd like to introduce this episode's guest host to talk a bit more about mental health support, especially in a college setting. Hi, um, I'm Libby. I'm one of the welfare officers at Homerton College. Um, I'm an education, psychology and learning undergrad, just to tell you a bit about myself. Um, Yeah, and I'm really excited to be here on the podcast today. Thank you for being here. So do you want to tell us a bit about what being a welfare officer actually entails? Like, what does that mean? What do you do kind of on the day to day? So I started being a welfare officer at the start of this academic year. Um, So it started in sort of the start of the pandemic, sort of university in a pandemic sort of vibe. So that was an interesting way to begin. But in general, the welfare officer role sort of has multiple parts. So one of them is sort of student support. So we run welfare drop-ins weekly. We have sort of like art classes, which usually would have been in person, but are now on Zoom. Um, So it's sort of one-to-one support for students sort of break from stress, sort of we're there to chat, have a conversation, provide tea and cake. But obviously it's been a bit different lacking the tea and cake because of (laughs) the situation, which has been a bit unfortunate. Um, So that's one aspect is sort of providing students with support. And another aspect is the welfare officers have weekly meetings with the senior staff, senior, the council, um, and the nurse so we are able to talk to senior members of staff and let them know what's going on in the college and where we think extra areas of support could be required for students and reflect on our own experiences and where we feel that the college could have more support or or where students are worried about certain things which has been a really valuable part of the experience but in general it's supporting students from our side and then also signposting to other areas of support so the college nurse the college counsellor and then support 
within the wider university. So I participated in the welfare emails in Lent term, and I actually really enjoyed that. Like, I didn't really think I was going to like it as much as I did, but it was really nice to have a reason to just like write a um, kind of cheery email to somebody and then receive one back and just ha having a reason to talk to somebody else and to kind of have that little exchange was really nice. And I thought also thought that was a cool way that you guys had kind of adapted something that should have been in person to an online format. Have you had to do that for other sort of elements? I guess you said the drop-in sessions, but what other ways have you had to kind of adapt your welfare to an online space? Well, the, as you said, the drop-ins have gone online and usually we'd run a, um, a art and chill session every week where it's just silly, silly crafts. Like this year, we've actually got a Homerton alumni who's running art classes. So it's very different in that it's quite a professional environment and it's learning how to do art. So it's still got the art and chill aspect, but that is one of the main things that, you know, is sort of gone online in a way. Yeah, so I guess you must be looking forward to having actually a term that's going to be a little bit more in person. Do you guys have any plans for this term about what you're going to do now that things are a bit more legal? Well, we're looking to do some welfare picnic and then also the friendship scheme should be hopefully up and running this term like everyone's back so if people who don't know what that is we did uh sort of sending out emails of hobbies that people have that other people might not know of so like tv shows or particular types of music or particular types of dance that are a bit more niche than the main societies and group people together in like friendship groups and the groups that i am in seem to be working um sort of hopefully people will be meeting up now that they're together and going on their long walks they said they're interested in or, or meeting up to watch certain films in the orchard and things so hopefully that will be now easier than it was on email yeah did you get a lot of people signing up for that yeah it was about I think 90 90 people signed up oh, wow. in the end. it was it was I think it's the most successful thing engagement wise so far which I was pretty shocked with but it, I think it just showed that people are wanting to make friends people are still it's easy to look at college and see all the friendship groups looking pretty settled and I think that's one main thing that I've noticed is university I never saw as being cliquey and I don't think it is still cliquey but I think that the pandemic has sort of forced people into groups more so than the free flow that it was in my first year where I, I did feel it was much more you can go and see anyone like in the bar clubbing everywhere I do think that has become a bit more it's not it's not it's not anything reflecting the students yeah it is just a lot harder to mingle yeah definitely I mean that was my experience especially in Michaelmas I think part of it was you know you couldn't go out in a group bigger than six people so you needed a pretty consistent group to be going out with it was just hard to like kind of branch out besides your household or besides the people on your course to meet other people so it's really cool that you guys have organized the friendship scheme I guess kind of unrelated, but um, why did you decide to become a welfare officer? Like what pushed you to run for the election and how did that all happen? As cliche as it sounds, you know, I've always wanted to help people. I've always wanted to support people. And I think that, you know, I'm studying education and psychology. I'm, I'm looking for a career in helping other people and supporting other people. And student mental health is something I'm, I'm really, you know, passionate about also the year above me who were welfare officers just made me feel so welcome like in freshers week like I just thought I'd love to be that person for somebody else it feels like you know they've made Homerton into like a home for everyone and it's it's just a really nice experience to be seen around college as somebody who's you know a friendly face and you can go and talk to and then another reason I think is sort of my own experience of first year where I didn't quite get the work-life balance right and so guiding other people through that process and offering sort of my own hindsight reflections on on 
work-life balance was one of the things I wanted to do. I wanted to help other people, you know, see how to manage their time with looking after their welfare. Do you have any reflections about that to share? My biggest reflection is there are 24 hours in a day. I, it's very easy to get caught up in thinking there's, you know, there's not enough time for this, there's not enough time for that. It's sectioning your day off is now what I do because there, there are 24 hours. That's a lot of hours. You know, sleep for seven, sleep for eight, sleep for nine. There's still, I'm not going to do the math now, there's still loads more hours in the day that you can use for work and still like eight hours of fun things, whatever that is. And obviously at the moment it's not really going out and things, but still socialising with your corridor finding activities that you do together I would just say work isn't everything there there is time in the day and it's not even that you have to replace it's not one or the other I think it's the main thing you can do both there is time to do both so true and I think because it, it does kind of seem like if you're not working you feel guilty for not working if you're if you're working you feel like you have like you always have to be working or you always have to be socializing um and it's nice to kind of be able to realize that actually you're allowed to do both and you should be doing both because you can't really do one well without having done some of the other it's the work guilt I think is a massive thing and I think that myself I sort of combated with sectioning off time and so I find it easier to say, look, I'm going to work for two hours and then I'm going to spend time with my friends for an hour. And if you do the two things and when you're spending time with your friends, you don't think you should be working. What has been the most difficult about the role? And then what do you think you've learned from it? So the most difficult probably well when West House went into lockdown and I can't say it was difficult for me because I personally wasn't in West House lockdown so it's much more difficult for people who experienced that than it was for me on the other side thinking of ways to support students in that environment was the biggest hurdle that we had to encounter so as soon as we heard we started making a like a document of things you know support of music film suggestions and you know coming drop-ins and just getting art supplies in so we can send them up all different things like that was it was the fastest paced thing we ever had to do so that that was the the biggest challenge in terms of the pace and the quick thinking that had to come with it you know you can't just throw you know biscuits and cookies at the situation but it, it felt like we, we couldn't do anything because there was no control we had over that situation it's really hard to know that there are students who are struggling but who just don't know where to reach out so making ourselves available and trying to advertise us as a uh, people to talk to was one of our priorities at that point and you know signposting where students could get support what do you think you've learned from having this role seeing student experience from a different light you see that the resilience that students have to to cope with situations and and seeing West House again West House lockdown and seeing but on social media for example what students were doing how they were coming up with like playing bowling in the corridor or in their rooms and sort of seeing how students adapt I think has been like I think students should have more credit it has been a really really tough year and we've sort of not been acknowledged by like the government and and I think a massive part of it is how resilient students have been and how supportive they have been of each other and you know I felt that the college community is sort of it's like a shared experience that you know you wouldn't wish anyone to go through again but it has been like a light on the fact that we are all in this I say we are all in this together (laughs) but no we are all in this together I think that's a key message from it since it is mental health awareness week why do you think mental health awareness is important I think you know reflecting what we're seeing in the news reflecting what we're seeing in the media reflecting on hearing about student experiences you know it's not about helping students when they're struggling it's about preventative measures it's about making the environment that students go into not one that is going to cause students to be stressed and cause and cause these these mental health situations you know having having the reactive measures is important having places where students can go for support is important 
but that support needs to be in place first and so I think raising awareness of you know student experiences and you know being aware of what other people are going through is, is a really important part of you know student of the experience just even having conversations is so important yeah definitely it's it's it is knowing that you're not that you're not alone in it First, we heard from Alicia to hear about her research into mental health and to learn about things like burnout and discuss whether mental health illness rates have increased as a result of the pandemic. I'm Alicia. I'm a PhD student at the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit. Um, my research is in mental health. Great. Thank you so much for being here. Um, so obviously, because it's Mental Health Awareness Week, um, we're here talking with Alicia about her thoughts on the rising rates of mental illness and the impact of the pandemic on mental illness. Yeah, so I think that, of course, the conversation about mental health is really important. And I think it's definitely becoming more commonplace. But I think with the pandemic, we're all facing some new stresses and we might not have come across these before. And it's important for us all to share these experiences. So like for students in particular, adapting to virtual teaching and exam seasons at Cambridge, everyone's just experiencing a roller coaster of stress and social isolation, along with the obvious fact that there's a pandemic raging outside. So yeah, I think that there's bound to be an increasing number of people feeling worn out and unable to cope. And this feeling of hitting the wall, you might refer to as burnout. I should point out that, of course, burnout isn't a mental illness, and that's a really important point to remember, but it can stem from or lead to mental health problems. Do you have any telling on how you can tell between if cases of feeling stressed, like if they turn into burnout? Yeah, it's a good question. So there is about five decades of research into what burnout is and what causes it. So it happens when these three factors happen at the same time. The first is an overwhelming feeling of emotional exhaustion. And then there's feelings of cynicism and detachment. And finally, a feeling of a lack of accomplishment. So when you're experiencing burnout, these three things might manifest in feelings like being exhausted after lots of sleep or being emotionally distant from your friends or family or no longer caring about the jobs that you need doing. And I think that during the pandemic, it seems like although people in general have been quite resilient to the changes, when you look into details, that's not the case for everyone. And you might expect that for people with young children or for those with pre-existing mental health problems, the deterioration is obviously much worse. Because obviously being burnt out is something you'd want to avoid. What do you think we can do to protect ourselves from it? I think just from my own personal experiences, one way of reducing stress and avoiding burnout is definitely making sure you maintain the social interactions. It's more difficult during the pandemic, but I just found that keeping in touch with my family and my friends really helped. And of course, there's doing exercise, which always seems to help, like getting out in those green spaces, going for walk. I think it's important to do that regardless of the weather, which I know can be really hard because it's like cold and wet outside. But I think it's just like a short walk around the block or down to the river really helps clear my mind yeah definitely everything we've sort of discussed today already has sort of led us to discuss that you know mental illnesses were they're not new from the pandemic people already were experiencing mental health issues um yeah exactly so i think even pre-covid rates of mental illness were increasing and you know we all saw those newspaper headlines about the increasing rates the headlines that go like the mental health epidemics we've seen across britain or mental health issues increasing tenfold since the 90s and i think that knowing what factors contribute to mental illness is important but there's also another important question to be asked about what is causing these increasing rates and what is it about today's society or our generation that means we're suddenly in this collective mental health crisis yeah I think like Libby was saying um it sounds like a pretty common theme is that um a lot of people are experiencing difficulties with their mental health 
maybe exacerbated by the pandemic, maybe pre-existing, kind of it seems like across the board, there there does seem to be an increase in the rate of mental illnesses. And I wonder if you could speak to maybe why that is or what's causing it. Yeah, definitely. So firstly, I think we know that that's happening because of prescriptions of antidepressants. The number of them have almost doubled in the last 10 to 15 years. And since antidepressants are used to treat a number of different mental health problems, this number could be an indication that mental illness is on the up. But of course, there are other explanations for the rise of prescriptions. So it could be due to increased public awareness and the drive to destigmatize mental illness. And people are more willing to go and seek help when they need it. So that definitely could be a good thing. And then it could be also that GPs are getting better at identifying and diagnosing genuine cases of mental illness, which again is good. But then alternatively, it could be that doctors are too readily handing out those prescriptions for even milder cases or because there's a lack of alternative treatments. And there's been a whole host of other explanations put forward, largely with a focus on young people. So if one proposal is that today we're growing up in a legitimately more stressful and uncertain world, even pre-COVID. Yeah, definitely. So like you said, like there's loads of you know different cases of mental illnesses and, and loads of different ways of sort of defining it. Do you have any insight on how to draw the line in between mental health and mental illness? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And the fundamental problem is, is the symptoms of mental illness lie on a continuum. So healthy people experience some of the same emotions and thoughts in their daily lives. And the question is, at what point do these emotions and thoughts become a symptom of a mental illness? And there's definitely a crucial role for mental health professionals to play in not just establishing this cutoff, but identifying whether the person is experiencing the symptoms that are causing them distress or affecting their ability to just function in daily life. Yeah, that's really interesting because definitely even in my own experience, I've kind of had that question in my head of like, you know, okay, so I feel this X thing. What does that actually mean? Like what and what do I do about it? Yeah, so I think it's definitely an important point to cover is if we use the example of anxiety, lots of people experience some level of anxiety and it's kind of part and parcel to being alive, right? But anxiety disorders occur when these processes get completely out of control. So, for example, one symptom of anxiety is worry. We're probably all familiar with the idea that some people tend to worry more than others. So imagining all the things that can go wrong. And these people we tend to call warriors. So to draw the line between being a warrior or having an anxiety disorder, clinicians will look at a few factors. Firstly, how long has a person been worrying for? Secondly, are the worries mild or overwhelming? And finally, has the worry stopped the person from functioning in their normal life? So I guess it's the level of distress it's causing you in your life is one way to draw the line. And I think the thing to know is that, of course, it's quite common to have the times when we're all feeling down and anxious. But if these thoughts and emotions are getting in the way of your everyday life and stopping you from doing the things that you need to do, it could be quite a good idea to seek some advice. And there are various ways that you can access his help. So if you're experiencing a mental health emergency, you can call the Samaritans or you can call 111 and press who. And then mental health problems can also be discussed with your college nurse or your tutor or a GP. Or if you would like professional help away from college, then it might be best to contact the University Counselling Service or have a look on the British Association for Counselling and Psychotherapy website. Um, And then finally, if you just want to talk through things in a confidential and anonymous space, the Nightline offers a really good round-the-clock support that could be regarding any worries or problems that you're having. Like you say, it doesn't need to be critical and just talking about these things can really help and prevent problems getting much worse. Great. Well, I think that's all really interesting. I guess the other thing we've asked everybody why they think mental health awareness is important since this is Mental Health Awareness Week. Yeah, I think that it's just really important for us all to talk about it openly. 
and reducing the stigma. And I think there's been a really big movement since like 2010, maybe. Um, and it has improved, but we still need to keep improving conversations. And I think Awareness Weeks and Awareness Days just helps open up that conversation between people and allows people to also think about their own mental health and think, am I okay? Do I need to talk to someone? And can I share my experiences? Yeah. Thank you very much. It's been really, really interesting to hear what you have to say on it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Next, we spoke to Natalie from Cambridge Nightline, who told us about her role as publicity officer and taught us about active listening. I'm Natalie. I'm a volunteer at Cambridge Nightline and also one of the public faces and publicity officer. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what Nightline is and then also what your role specifically is? Yeah, so Nightline is a listening service. So we are completely anonymous and confidential, which means if you ring us or use our messaging service or email us, we never see your phone number or your email address or anything like that. It's completely confidential. And then we're also non-directive and non-judgmental. So we will never give advice about what you should do. We'll never try and tell you where you should go next or how you could resolve the situation. And we'll never judge anything you say. As a volunteer, I take calls and answer messages and do things like that. And then as the publicity officer, that makes me one of the public faces as well. So all of our volunteers are also completely anonymous. So they don't tell people that they're volunteers. Nobody knows they're volunteers, except for the publicity officers. So we manage social media accounts and things like that. And we're the ones that will then do things like this. So advertise and actually put ourselves out there and say what Nightline is. Why did you decide to join Nightline? What kind of, how did you get there? I wanted to find something to do as a student that would help me help with some of the issues with mental health and loneliness that people have. And Nightline is just such a great service for that. And it covers so many issues, struggles, worries people might be having. And I loved the idea of kind of getting involved in that. What do you think are some of the most challenging things like to be a volunteer? I think having to try and be so non-directive in a call or a message and not give advice, even if you think you know the perfect solution. And the policy of non-directivity and non-judgmental is so key to what we do that it's so important to get right. What does non-directive kind of responses sound like? If somebody rings up with an issue, a directive response would be to something like, oh, well, have you thought about doing that? Have you, why don't you go and speak to this person? Why don't you look at this website or speak to these people? Or like kind of here's how you would solve the issue. And then non-directive is very much active listening, which is a key part of what we do. It's just giving you space to talk through your own issues. We ask lots of like open questions and kind of encourage person who's calling us or messaging us to just kind of talk through how they're feeling. Because I guess we're kind of mentioning how a big part of sort of taking care of your mental health is just speaking about things why do you think mental health awareness is important and why do you think having those conversations is important I think there's a lot of kind of social media just trying to spread awareness of talking to people and I think it's so important to have a week specifically to really really point out that it's not something just that should just get lost in your feed it should be something that is kind of first and foremost in your life not even if you're having serious issues and that's something that Nightline is trying to kind of spread awareness of as well it's not just if you're having a real crisis point that you should reach out it should be all the time if that's kind of in the middle of a night and it's 4am and you've been trying to get this essay finished and you don't really know to talk to and all your friends are asleep you can ring nightline because we'll always be there to listen yeah definitely I think something that you know needs to be addressed is you know not having to be at a certain breaking point to ask for help which I think you know nightline is really good for and that you don't have to be you know anyone can call it doesn't have to be any reason I think something that's really easy to think is oh like someone else is probably 
you know in a worse situation so I shouldn't call they like because they they need the support so I think yes how how do you think we can go about tackling that how can we make students aware that you know it doesn't have to be a massive catastrophe to call that it can it can be smaller things that then by talking about it is sort of a preventative measure yeah I think that's an issue that we're kind of really we're kind of constantly struggling with and I think yeah just really being clear to people that it is not just a crisis hotline it is a listening service first and foremost and nothing is too small and even if it is just you can't sleep that's fine if you're walking home and you feel a bit unsafe then that's fine just give us a ring if you are having like a serious crisis that's fine give us a ring and there is no there's no issue too small and I think there's such a kind of culture of oh but some people have got it so much worse off than me so I don't want to waste time and something I've kind of learned from doing Nightline is that there is never like there's never an issue that's too small there's never something that is annoying or kind of just a waste of time nothing's ever like that with mental health do you think that there are skills that you've learned after having been part of Nightline that you find yourself bringing into your personal life outside of the context of Nightline yeah definitely I mean I know I feel like I keep going on about it but active listening is something that I've found really useful when just talking to friends and family and there's so many times where a friend will like say something to me and I'll be like oh yeah that happened to me or like yeah and I'm, you know you're trying to help but then person you might not actually have any idea what they're talking about and you've just misunderstood and kind of the skills that you get from the training of like active listening and genuinely not putting your own advice on that person has really really helped and I think has kind of made me a better kind of friend and <laughs> a better person to talk to generally can you kind of outline how to be I mean obviously it's a huge it's a huge question like how to be an active listener but like if you had to give a couple of tips for like how to improve your listening skills what would you say Yeah, I think it sounds stupid, but listen, don't, you know, don't feel like you have to fill, you don't feel like you constantly have to kind of respond to what they're saying with a new point. You can just kind of sit and listen and just acknowledge what they're saying. So, you know, the standard kind of just like, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. And just kind of showing that you're listening is really important. And again, you don't always have to try and fix people's problems. You can just listen and ask them open general questions about what they've said and allow them to talk it through themselves as opposed to trying to fix it for them. So it's one of the great things about the way Nightline has been able to pretty consistently remain as it was before. Especially students who've kind of adapt to learning from home for the first time. It's a university service that they can access from anywhere. So even if they were in a different country or back at home somewhere in the UK, they can still access it regardless of the fact that everything else is shut down. Is there any support available for the Nightline volunteers? Yeah, volunteer welfare is something that's really important to us um, as an organisation. It's a really nice support network within volunteers because you can't tell anyone what you're doing, but you can talk to other volunteers about it. Yeah, it's a, it's a really nice community of everyone because everybody gets it and everybody knows what you're talking about. And there's a lot of kind of check-ins and support and making sure that all of our volunteers are happy and okay to carry on. In your training, do you have to, do you get to learn about how to, I don't know, you must have to put some kind of distance between you and the person you're listening to, otherwise it would be too intense. How do you, how do you manage to be empathetic without hurting with the person? Yeah, I think generally as well, the people who, you know, if you apply to be a nightline volunteer, you are aware of the sort of thing that you're going to be doing. It's, it's never a surprise to the volunteers, but regardless of that, it is important to make sure that everyone's okay. So in the training, you know, we really stress that volunteer welfare is, you know, is always a priority. And I think I think the whole anonymity of it because it's two ways so the you know the callers or the people messaging we never see any of their 
phone number or their email address or anything like that but then on the flip side all the volunteers are anonymous as well and I think that does help to put some distance if you're trying to like yeah it helps you not kind of take it away with you then because it's kind of you've done your volunteering and then you can kind of go back and nobody knows what you're doing I just say as well at the minute we're back to kind of calls and messaging and email runs all the time but because of covid we've kind of running a hybrid system so normally we're open 7 a.m till 7 p.m but now that's only on mondays wednesdays fridays and saturdays so if you look on our instagram or our facebook or the website it's quite it's like clearly laid out when is calls and when is instant messaging and what days and what times you can call great that's super helpful well thank you so much for being here it was really lovely to have you thank you for having me on (laughs) yeah I'm gonna say thank you for thank you for the work that you do I think it's really important and it's really amazing that it's students helping other students I think that's a really kind of special part about it then we spoke to Jessica a team member from the step study who told us about the aims and process of the study and some preliminary findings thank you so much for the invitation and my name is Jessica I'm a research associate in the department of psychiatry I'm also a junior research fellow at Wolfson College. Originally, I come from psychology, or more specifically from clinical and health psychology. After my master's, I have done a PhD in psychiatry here in Cambridge. During my PhD, my research was mainly focused on um, resilience research and on population mental health. And now in my postdoc, I'm involved in a study called STEP study. I think uh, many of you will hopefully have heard about it. So STEP is a study we've designed with a team of researchers and um, well-being staff and data managers. And STEP basically aims to study mental health problems and well-being in Cambridge University students during the pandemic. And the original idea of the STEP study basically comes from, from the asymptomatic screening program. So a lot of Cambridge students have taken part in the asymptomatic screening program, which tests whether Cambridge students test positive for COVID. And a lot of students um, reported that it would be great if there could also be some monitoring of the mental health problems, because as we can all imagine, like in these trying times, these changing circumstances, the pressure on many students increase and they are reporting more mental health problems. So what, what we are basically trying to do is get a better idea of what is going on and trying to identify factors that may put students at an increased risk and also trying to identify factors that can protect students from developing mental health problems. We are looking at factors such as social support. We are also looking at factors such as, for example, the household environment. So there are a lot of variables that could be relevant. And then another aspect of the STEP study, and I I think that's my, that's personally my favorite aspect of the study is that we are also trying to feed the knowledge right back. So we have four different levels at which we are doing this. So the first one is that we have a personalized item on our daily survey. So students can choose a goal-oriented item which they find relevant and which or which is not part of the survey. So they can insert that item and then on a daily basis that they can answer that item and they will get a feedback plot so that over over the course of the study they can track themselves. Um, we have something similar on the weekly surveys. So on the weekly surveys, we're trying to get to get an indication for mental distress and um, students or can opt in for for feedback on the weekly survey so that they can monitor the mental distress scores over the course of the study. But we are not only trying to feedback to the students themselves, we are also trying to feedback to the colleges. We have bi-weekly reports which we circulate to colleges and we also circulate um, bi-weekly reports on the university-wide level. We publish those on the um, on the STEP website. So we are really trying to 
learn, but we are also trying to feed the knowledge back and, and to give back so that ideally the knowledge we obtain can right away be, be used and can be leveraged. It's really interesting to think about things that, you know, that you didn't automatically think of that students actually come to think of and bring to the discussion. I think that's interesting as well, because the way that kind of in general the pandemic has been going is there's been so many things that people weren't expecting to be challenging and that people weren't expecting to have such a big impact because there's so much about our daily lives that is changed completely when everything is online or when you can't leave your room or your house. But you don't really even consider what those things are until suddenly you're in a position where you don't have access to green space or you don't have you don't feel like you can relax because you're nervous about how your housemates are acting or you're nervous about leaving the house you know there's so many things that you don't even consider so it's interesting that that's sort of been replicated even in your experience of doing the study and in people's experiences of participating yes absolutely and and the reasoning you just explained is exactly also the reason why we are doing the study on a daily basis because the pandemic is so rapidly changing and all the guidelines are changing too whether that's university specific guidelines or whether this is like governmental guidelines it's a real roller coaster ride i think for for everyone we are now collecting all the data and we are busy with cleaning the data and making sure that it's basically that we have a solid solid database and and now we are starting to do the analyses but so far we have only preliminary analyses and no hard and fast results but i hope that over the course of the summer we can actually provide some some answers to all the questions are you going to continue the survey beyond the end of this academic year first of all it's of course not up to me i'm not i'm not the pi of the study um so i'm i'm not sure i think this term is really relevant because now um, we have the exam term and a lot of students have exams. And as everyone knows, exams are stressful. It puts a strain on everyone. And during exam term, we also know that there, that people report more mental health problems. So I think if we can learn now which factors put people at risk and which factors protect people from developing mental health problems, I hope that this will inform us for next term so that we then hopefully will have some information we can use to help the students to hopefully either regain mental health or stay mentally healthy or recover from mental health problems. Have you had any um, kind of positive feedback of people who found the maybe doing the survey insightful for themselves or they were able to access support that they hadn't known about before? There were actually a couple of students who reported that the mental health and the weekly mental health scores that they were higher than they had expected, which kind of pushed them over the, the, the threshold of actually reaching out and seeking support. We, have, we of course, do not know which kind of support they um, try to um, obtain, whether that, you know, support can also be just reaching out to your friends or your family. But for some people, support may really also be to reach out to someone who's objective and who's a professionally trained um, psychologist or psychiatrist. So it, there, there are very different resources. I think um, what the survey can do and what it has done for some is really raise awareness of mental health problems. This sounds like a very small step and really a, a, a small step forward, but I think it's it's an important one because in, in 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 these busy times, like you know, university terms are always busy, but um now especially when everything is remote and you can basically study whenever it suits you, I think sometimes it's very hard to um take stock and to reflect and to think about how you're feeling so if you have some kind of reminder that gives you a snapshot of indication of whether it's going okay or whether it maybe isn't going so well it can already help you to decide for yourself whether it's time for you to reach out for support. I think it's interesting what you were saying about how 
part of the awareness that's coming out of it is like a personal awareness of your own situation because a lot of the conversations that we've been having about mental health awareness are kind of more external like why as a kind of as a community we should be talking about mental health why the university should be talking more about mental health but I think also such an important piece of that is the more introspective like awareness within yourself of your own mental health because it's really easy to get caught up in like especially when things are changing all the time and when the restrictions are changing and when so much is happening around you sometimes like you were saying it's really hard to actually get a good reading within yourself of how you're feeling and whether that's something you know whether that's like a flag for something that's seriously going on or or if you're just experiencing like an everyday sort of stress um so I think that's such a big piece to mental health awareness as well as being able to know that about yourself and and then do something with that I think I think you're completely right there are multiple levels to it so the personalized level is is very important and I think I think with the study, we are actually trying to feedback on the personal level, but we are also trying to provide the colleges um, with reports, and we are also trying to re- to release reports um, on the on the university website. Because you're right, like it's very important for yourself to realize what's going on with you, but equally, it's important for the colleges to be aware that students are struggling and to think about um, ways. In which, uh, in which, in which we can help the students, or in which the students can help each other, um, and it's also important for 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 the university to support the colleges in doing so. So I think it's really, you know, it's really the interaction between the different levels that we need to be able to support the individual. Um, it, often, I think it's it's very important, or the initiation of getting help often has to come from you. Um, because you know yourself best sometimes your friends and your tutors notice but not always so if you notice yourself I think that's a really big step forward you you mentioned the introspective aspect of the reflections of the report and I suppose you mentioned you know sometimes your tutors sometimes your friends notice but I suppose that's what's so valuable about it in this time because I think it's probably harder for others to detect how you're feeling over zoom and you're not meeting outside your lecture rooms and you're not meeting your tutors in person and I think the personal aspect of supervisions is sort of gone before you go and you'd have a five minute conversation about your journey and the weather and and everything like that and that's actually quite valuable parts of of social interaction and where you can sort of detect if someone's not quite all right but without without that actual personal human interaction I think that having a method and a mechanism to use to self-reflect is is really valuable yeah I entirely agree I think um it's exactly what you described so normally you would sometimes have interactions with other students if it's just in the kitchen or the library but if all of this falls away it's it's really you who has to reach out to people to actually get into this interaction then I think it's very important also to if we have to do online lecturing that we try to take part that students try to take part as much as they can and that lecturers try to have you know everyday conversations as well even if it's over zoom and that people try to turn the videos on videos on if they feel comfortable just so that we can at least feel some of that human interaction and and try to take care um, as much uh, of each other as much as we can. No, I think we've talked about this um, in other interviews as well. It's like those little personal interactions that really um, kind of constitute sort of feeling okay on an everyday level and the like sort of stability of those interactions that have fallen away because of the pandemic has had like a much larger impact, I think, than maybe anybody would have really expected it to. If you have any kind of last thoughts before we wrap up that you want to share? 
Well, first of all, I would like to thank you again for inviting me. I am I am very delighted that I could talk about this study. And I know that, that all the information or all the findings we have are very preliminary. Um, but I can tell you that we are really trying to work on analyzing the data carefully and trying to obtain robust findings and that we will really try very hard to feed the information back on all the different levels to the students and college and university. And we also um, are really very happy about any kind of feedback and we will try to make the student uh, make the study really relevant to the students so I really want to communicate that if, if you have any 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 kind of feedback we, we are grateful for you to to report it and we hope that we will all get get well through the pandemic as well as we can thank you very much thank you so much for being here I think the work that you're doing is really important and having that having actual data about students experience of the pandemic is going to be really crucial going forward because I think it's going to be interesting to see how we're all going to have to sort of recover after this. Finally, we heard from Kat, who described what support is like for postgrad students during a pandemic and how that shaped her experience at Cambridge so far. I'm an MPhil student and I'm at Jesus College and my name is Kat Chapman. I'm doing my MPhil in multidisciplinary gender studies. Uh, it's basically exciting because it's one, it's a big research project. I was working for five years before coming here at a diversity and inclusion consultancy in New York. We are uh, working with corporate clients. So I'm kind of, I'm studying that industry now and I've been here since September. And what did you do before being here? Where did you do your undergrad? So I did my undergrad at Vassar College um, in Poughkeepsie in New York State. I graduated in 2015. So I had kind of been, I'm a mature student, I'm 27. I had been living in um, the city and working directly prior to this. How was that transition between working and then coming to Cambridge? And what, like, what was that like for you? Negotiating the relationship with my college has been interesting because, you know, I, I was living as an adult in New York City with extremely little regulation of, you know, what I was doing and where I was being. And as a socially conscious and responsible person. I was self-regulating, right? Um, but it was a personal responsibility. It wasn't, you know, enforced by an authority in like that kind of paternalistic um, college way. And I think that they give postgrads like a lot more leeway than, you know, undergrad students. But it's been interesting being back in that relationship. So you were saying that the um, the college does give postgrads a little bit more leeway. Does that kind of have a flip side where they maybe don't give you as much support as they would give undergrads? Or what's the relationship like on that end? It's felt very diffuse. And I wonder if that's always the case for postgrads. Um, I imagine it's not. I think that they do usually try to do, you know, bonding events and, you know, more welfare tutelage or whatever it might be. <laughs> like, there's just more kind of going on because it's easier to get together. I'm sure that you're hearing this a lot. But um, I do think that it's been hard to kind of pull people together and have that kind of community building. And I imagine that that's always more difficult for postgrads. MPhils are only here for a year. Um, you get a a huge variety in age and experience. And so, you know, there's already kind of less of that like collective spirit. Because it's interesting, like, I guess because you're only there for a year, it's hard for them to sort of build a relationship. It's true. But, um, you know, it's interesting because I intellectually understand that, but it does feel like, oh, you're only here for years, so we're not going to bother. A lot of the times an MPhil experience is padded by kind of having a taste of the social aspect and having the Cambridge experience. Um, so even if you're only here for a year, there's excitement, there's, you know, I never had, I never had any in-person 
class. Like we had no contact hours at all. It was all completely remote. And, you know, I met my advisor for my dissertation in person one time and like those kinds of things. And even just dinners with your friends, like that will make a year of experience really, really rich and like worthwhile. I haven't really thought about doing the whole, the whole university in a year online. It's really challenging. And I imagine that the mental health support, you'd hope that it would be more than normal. You'd hope that it'd be really, really readily available. Absolutely. You know, you kind of hope that in the absence of incidental run-ins and those kind of nice social moments that just happen, you know, in the spur of the moment, uh, there would be increased effort to do that maybe virtually or to kind of replicate it or to check in. So yeah, you, you definitely want in that vacuum a little more proactive effort. Um, and I think possibly because the transition and because of the, you know, unprecedented nature of what we're all living through right now. Would you say there were any strategies you sort of employed yourself or anything that you sort of thought of as a cohort to help with any mental health that you might have been experiencing? Well, that's the thing. So I, because I uprooted my life, um, I didn't want to go home. I wanted to get my money's worth. I wanted to be here. I wanted to experience everything. I didn't go home over Christmas break or over the winter break. And that was when I noticed the absolute fallout of any interaction from the school on any level from college, university, course level. Yeah, you know, of course we were kind of doing like survival tactics. Like I saw a lot of my course mates who were here. It's a very international course. Um, but a lot of people I'd gotten close to in college did go home. So people that I kind of had my friendships with weren't really around. Um, and I had people that I really liked in my course, but you know, it was kind of a different type of relationship and they were still around. So we all saw each other, you know, going on walks, but it's the dead of winter. So there's about four hours of sunlight. So I would say it was, it was like an interesting test in resilience. Like everyone made it through, but like I've taught, I've since spoken to like a few of my course mates who I was seeing a lot over the winter and we're all kind of like in retrospect, that was crazy. Like I almost wonder if it was impossible to acknowledge at the time how difficult it was. Um, and so, yeah, like I think that when I look back at it, it almost looks different than it did going through it. I actually haven't thought about that myself, but I'm just reflecting now when it, it, it is the case that the resilience students have, I think is actually quite amazing. You convince yourself that it's fine because like you said, it's the admittance of it that I think would have been worse. And when you look back and you think that was really quite difficult and a really unique experience because Cambridge is unique anyway. I'm sure you found that. One of the biggest saving graces is when you go into the corridor and you tell someone that your essay is really, really bad and they just tell you yeah. their essay is really, really bad and you have that joint, we don't know what we're doing moment. And it's those moments that, you know, are really helpful. It's hard to overstate how much those small social interactions or just being in a communal space can can mean if you're, if you're someone who needs that. I was just, I couldn't eat, like not even going to like cafeteria. Well, I guess I was just wondering, like, how was your experience kind of aside from academics? How has your experience here been in comparison to your undergrad? I mean, I'm sure like they're very different four years versus one. It's going to be a really different experience. But what, what has that been like? It was like a different world for so many reasons, right? Like, like you said, it was four years. Um, I went to a small liberal arts college. But like, you know, my courses were always really, really small. My relationships with professors were always very, you know, kind of reciprocal, personal, like you could really have a conversation if you needed to. But it was also just a really great social experience for me. But comparatively, like I 
I don't think I will ever be able to untangle COVID from, you know, this experience. And I'll also say like, I especially notice it um, in my friends who are coming straight through from undergrad. There was more in Michaelmas term for sure, but there was kind of anxiety about like people leaving groups or like, you know, like if you hung out with other people or you hung out with a different like, you know, set of people. And it felt a little foreign to me because I haven't been in that context for a long time where, you know, you have, not you have to have a friend group, but you know, it helps to have kind of a solid group and whatever. And the last thing that I wanted to ask was since this is obviously this episode is in honor of Mental Health Awareness Week, I wonder if you have any thoughts about why mental health awareness is important and why it's something that we should be talking about. I'll say definitely in the context of COVID, I think I have seen this kind of individualism and resilience narrative belied. I think that it's really easy to say, oh, you should be responsible for this, you know, 100% yourself or you know, you should just like fight through and there's like honor and valor in the struggle. Um, It's actually easier to say that when you're in a world full of, you know, the quotidian support that you get just from the world being normal. I think that during COVID, you know, a lot of structure that we've taken for granted kind of just fell out from underneath us and it exposed hopefully for other people and not just myself, the fact that, you know, we gain a lot from caring about each other from empathy, you know, in terms of mental health, you know, I I want a more empathetic world and I always have. Well said. Thank you so much for being here. It was really lovely to meet you and to get to talk to you. That's all for episode two. Although Mental Health Awareness Week comes to an end on Sunday, mental health awareness and the conversations around it must continue. As we discussed in the episode, speaking up about mental health and seeking the appropriate support whenever needed are crucial to living healthy and fulfilling lives. Resources are available in the description of this episode. Do not hesitate to get the support you need and to continue the conversation about taking care of and managing your mental health. Thanks again to Libby for guest hosting this episode with me, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.